Would you turn to Mark 14? We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. Um, and it's been such a blessing to exposit the Scripture as it has been handed down to us verse by verse. And we find ourselves today in Mark 14 from verse 32 to verse 36. This is the passage for today. And the title of this message is Behold the Agony of Christ. Behold the Agony of Christ. And I want to start by reflecting and sharing with you that, that there is nothing in life that is more satisfying to the soul of man than to behold the glory of Christ and to go deeper and to ponder upon his mysterious personhood. Even before the world was formed, way before the first angels, angel flapped his wings, the Father has always been satisfied in the eternal Son. So much that he decreed the world to be created so that the inner hidden glory of Jesus to explode like fireworks so that all to see the sparkling loveliness of this Son of God. The Father created the world for us to behold how magnificent how mind-boggling, how intoxicating the splendorous beauty of this Son of God. And this was the purpose of creation. And when this Son of God became incarnate and added to himself human nature, to his God nature, his mysterious loveliness was revealed 10 million times more. Because through the suffering of the cross, Jesus drowns his saints in the depth of his love. He hooked our spiritual eyes upon his dazzling beauty. And he draws us even till today to himself by cords of mercy and grace. To his people, when we ponder upon his humility, we find him attractive. In his agony and suffering to his people, he is sympathetic. In his bleeding cross with torn flesh and wounded side to the redeemed, Jesus stands as awesome God, man. And oh, how we long to be with him and we're eagerly waiting for him. And those who are constantly drunk from this fountain, they joyfully want to be like him. And they are so amazed by his beauty, so much that the cry of their hearts is that, God, would you manifest this majestic Jesus, his life in us and his glory to shine through us. And with this cry in our mind, we want to read this passage at hand and we want to be mesmerized. We want to be astonished by who Jesus is. And in this passage, let us ensure that his personhood 
is our focus so much that it would rock our world. And his life to grip our souls. And we'd be so astonished by this person, the second person in a triune head. And I pray as we do so that we would have this desire to want to be like him. So with this, with that being said, can let us start reading from Mark 14, verse 32. It says, they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. To put it in context, this is Thursday night, Passion Week, only a handful of hours before Jesus is delivered to the Roman soldiers for his execution. And even to these very last minutes, the disciples demonstrated a spirit of self-confidence. If you recall, we've gone through this last week. And they were so self-confident that even when Jesus foretold them about how they will all fall away and they didn't like what Jesus told them, they felt compelled to correct Jesus. Jesus tested them. How would they respond when they hear that they will fall away? They failed the test. Big time. And now, in this passage, Jesus is going to correct their exam. How will he do this? He will invite them as he will invite all of us into this darkest hour our Lord will ever experience before his death. And he will pull the veil and reveal his anguished soul. And he will show us what a man of God who places his confidence in God, not in himself, in God, looks like even in his worst trial of his life. So with fear and trembling, let us enter this garden of Gethsemane with our Lord. Let us take off our sandals of self-confidence, for this is a holy ground. And as we meditate on our Lord Jesus, let him dominate our thinking. Let us be so focused in our Lord Jesus Christ in this passage so much that he would control us and he would drive us to the ground with him. So when we leave out of this place, there will be no other options in our hearts and minds but to desire and to be compelled to praise him and in praising him, that we would desire to live like him. The outline for today's message, are three points. First, we're going to look at Jesus as our sympathetic savior. Second, suffering servant. Third, 
submissive son. So we'll start with Jesus, our sympathetic saviour. Meaning that Jesus is compassionate Messiah. That Jesus is so kind, so gentle, and so loving to his people. And we read starting from verse 32, and it says, They came to a place named Gethsemane. So Jesus now and his 11 disciples, they left Jerusalem. They went down Temple Mount. They crossed the valley in John 18, verse 1. It tells us the name of this valley, Kidron, Kidron Valley. And right at the bottom of this Mount um, um, of Olives, as they crossed over to the Mount of Olives, there is this secluded garden called Gethsemane. And most likely it was surrounded by a fence because it was a privately owned property. And most likely it was owned by one of Jesus' uh, wealthy followers. John 18 verse 2 tells us that Jesus regularly took his disciples to this place, this garden, away, away from the busyness of the city and most definitely for devotion and for prayer. And when they arrived to this place, it says, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. So as soon as they entered this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples to sit right at the gate. Well, to do what? Uh, to, to play that fish, to wait, to wait for a bus until he prayed up or something? Well, why did he tell them to, to stay there? Well, Luke twenty two forty, 40, it tells us what they were meant to be doing. It says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The strong storm of trial was blowing their direction and they've got to watch guard their hearts. They've got to pray and ensure that they are in the presence of God. But as the story continues on, we find that rather than praying, they fell asleep. Well, anyhow, verse 33 it says, and he took with him Peter and James and John. So now he left the um, eight disciples at the gate and he took the innermost circle of the 12, the ones who have followed him and they were closest to him, Peter, James, and John. And what do we know about them? Well, James and John. If you recall, we've gone through the disciples one by one, and we found that James and John are the most brash. They have such an anger problem that Jesus called them sons of thunder. And Peter, Peter has demonstrated um, to be the most egotistic of the 12 disciples, that he is the most unteachable the most stubborn, the one who was about to betray, deny him, I'm sorry. And he is the most stubborn, so much so that Jesus called him Peter. You recall his name was Simon and it's Jesus that called him Peter, meaning botrous, pebble, your heart is a, as hard as a rock. That's how stubborn he was. And yet we find Jesus picked these people and made him to be his inner circle. And now he takes them by hand further into the garden. Why? Let's continue and read. And it says, and began to be distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. So here Jesus took the harshest and the most cruel disciples. And then Jesus revealed his grief, his innermost pain to them. They were his closest companions. How come? Why would Jesus do so? You see, these disciples that were work in progress, their hearts were still under maintenance. We looked at them last week. They were in large degree still unteachable and stubborn and condemning. They were self-confident and they were self-seekers. They were bad students in the school of holiness. But what a gracious teacher they had. He loved them unconditionally, always been patient, ever hopeful. He never gave up on them. We know the story that when our Lord was betrayed, they all forsook him. When he was crucified, they deserted him. And even when he told them that he would rise again, they didn't believe him. He told them so many times, again and again, I will rise from the dead. But they never treasured this truth into their hearts. They were bad students. They heard with their ears, but it never left any impression on their hearts. Their self-confidence was booming. Their arrogance was skyrocketing. And if Jesus would have rejected them and said, all right, I had enough, I'm going to choose another 12 disciples, he would have rightly been justified. But none of their failures stopped our Lord from choosing them to be his apostles. What a gracious Lord we have. He loved them to the end, the Bible says. And despite their shameful spiritual condition, he freely embraced them, embraced them to be his intimate friends and close companions. And even in these darkest moments of Jesus' agony, he invited them. And he invited even the most stubborn and the most angry disciples. And he invited them to his most vulnerable state and let them witness his agony. What a comforting thought to reflect on, brothers and sisters, that our Lord loves his followers and he loves all his followers the same way. He never cast them off just because they fail and they stumble. No, once our Lord locks his hands into our souls, and grips us, no matter our flaws and weaknesses, he never lets go. Our Lord is so compassionate. He's so merciful. And his heart always beats with drum beats with, of sympathy. He loves to drown his people in his grace. Brothers, our Lord, in our salvation, even before our salvation, when we were wicked, when we were bankrupt of any goodness as we were, yet he loved us anyway, and he forgave us. Will he get rid of us now just because we fail and we stumble? Brothers, let us be reminded that Jesus' love never diminishes. 
His faithfulness is as solid as a rock. We've got to take comfort in his truth. We've got to praise him because he's such a gracious savior, so compassionate, so tender-hearted towards his own. So that's the first point. Jesus is a sympathetic savior. And number two, that Jesus is our suffering servant. Self-confident people, people are allergic to suffering. Okay? That they don't really like to sacrifice their comfort for the sake of God and the gospel. And when the tough gets going, or how does it go? <laughs> when the when the <laughs> When the tough, when when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Huh? Is that how it is? But not so with Jesus. Let, let's have a look again in that verse, verse thirty-three. And he, and began to be very distressed and troubled. So as Jesus walked further into the garden with his companions, anguish filled his heart. And here Mark used strong terms to describe how terrible Jesus felt. Let's have a look. First, he says, very distressed. In a Greek dictionary, it says it's struck with terror and amazement. There is a sense of astonishment mixed with deep pain. These are the words. So Jesus, in his human nature, was shocked at how grieved he felt. And the second word here is the word troubled. Again, that's another strong word, and it speaks of severe distress, extreme anguish. The intensity of the sorrow was so great that it threw Jesus off. And we see this in even Jesus' words in verse 34. It says, and he said to them, my soul is what? Not grieved, deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Yeah. Jesus didn't shy away from sharing how he felt. These words deeply grieved, meaning he was overwhelmed with sadness. He was drowning in that sinkhole of dreadful agony. He was so tormented, as it says there, to the point of death. Meaning he felt so distressed that he was about to die. In fact, in, in the Gospel of Luke 22 verse 44, Luke tells us that being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And listen to this. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I'm not a medical expert, but I think it's pretty bad to have drops of blood falling off your face. How distressed was Jesus? Now let's park here and ask this very important $1 million question. What is it that caused Jesus to be so sorrowful? In fact, as we read later and in verse 36, Jesus says, remove this cup from me. What was in the cup that Jesus was, was about to drink? 
What did Jesus see in this cup that was so dreadful that led him to agonize? Was it the rejection of all people, Jews and Romans? Was it the forsaking of his disciples? The betrayal of Judas? No. No way. Because history tells us that there were many Christians that were forsaken, yet they were at peace. They were at peace. They never agonized. Was it the physical torture, the nailing on the cross, the spitting, the mocking, the whipping? Well, definitely not. How come? Because there are thousands of martyrs that we know of that marched to their death to be burnt at the stake. And yet there were praises in their lips. There were gladness in their faces. And God forbid that Jesus somehow is less brave than his own followers. What is it in the cup that, that was so dreadful? It must have been something that is far more severe than physical pain, more painful than just some loneliness and rejection. What grieved Jesus, and as the scripture tells us, 1 Peter chapter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And what happened when he bore our sins? Isaiah answers this question, Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. So what happened? What did Jesus see in this cup? Jesus looked into this cup and saw all our sins with all their filth, and he knew he was about to bear them all. He saw our anger, our pride, our lustful desires, our selfishness and bitterness and envy. He saw our jealousy. He saw our pride and self-confidence. Every last sin of ours was in this cup. And the perfectly holy Son of God was about to drink this cup. How could it be, brethren, the sinless, spotless, innocent Lamb of God who knew no sin to be our sin bearer, the one who is incapable of sin, who's infinitely pure, and yet for all our iniquities to be laid upon him so much that the scripture tells us he became sin for us, can we even imagine the depth of guilt he felt on that night? Or the height of shame that he carried? What did, what did Jesus say in his cup? the entirety of our guilt and sorrows. And he was about to drink it in this dreadful hour. And he's grieved our Lord. But it wasn't just our sin and guilt that he saw in his cup, but he also saw the consequences for bearing our sin. 
And so the second thing that Jesus saw in this cup is the wrath of God. He knew that it was just a matter of hours before his soul was about to be brutally tortured with such pain that is unimaginable. Brothers, let us never forget this. That it was for us, Jesus bore all of God's punishment and all of God's wrath. Jesus, as he carried our sin and guilt and shame and sorrow, God treated him as if he committed all sins of all of God's people. And the eternal hammer of God's righteous vengeance without any mercy struck him and pounded him and crushed him until the very last sin of his people was paid for. He became like a cluster of grapes cast into that wine press and the almighty feet of our holy God and his fury against sin stomped upon him, trampled, trampled him, and squashed him until his redeeming blood gushed out for his people. Suffering servant. When Jesus died for us, we must know that he exhausted all of his flesh with all of its comfort and ease. And he's given us all he has and all that he is as a ransom to save us. And what's amazing in John 10, it tells us that he did this voluntarily. And thus this became the greatest suffering on the stage of the world and history. Brothers, he did all of this so that our sins would be forgiven. And that we would be granted eternal life. Do we believe this wonderful truth? How can we believe this truth and yet not love him? He single-handedly opened the gates of heaven for us. And he poured out eternal blessings because of his suffering. How can we not want to praise him? and adore him and jesus wonderful attitude as a suffering servant not only would compel us to praise him brothers and sisters but to freely and cheerfully want to follow him to be like him and to live exclusively for him jesus is our sympathetic savior Second, suffering servant. And finally, let us gaze upon and worship him and praise him for he is a submissive son. Again, in contrast with the disciples who were self-confident, self-confident people don't even know how to spell the word submission. It is not in their dictionary. But here is Jesus who's always trusted his father, 
continually places dependence upon the Father, constantly and willfully obeyed the Father even when it hurt. And we see in verse 35, it says, And he went a little beyond them. Luke twenty-two forty-one says, About a stone's throw, not too far away from them. And when he went there, it says, he fell to the ground and began to pray. Well, when we look at the parallel accounts from the Gospels and the book of Hebrews, and we piece all parts of the picture together, we come up with, the, with, those, with this flow. One, he went down on his knees. We see this in Luke 22. And then his face to the ground. It's in Matthew 26. And while his nose was touching the ground, he prayed repeatedly. And he wasn't whispering. It wasn't prayer in, just in his mind. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications, listen to this, with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. So the disciples could see him laying prostrate state, in a prostrated state, watching him convulsing, hearing his cry. They could see the drops of blood falling to the ground, totally broken before the Father. How humble is our Savior? That is amazing. And, and what is more amazing is the content of his prayer. It says, he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, and this is the beginning of the prayer, Abba Father. What does Abba Father mean? Well, all the disciples knew exactly what it meant. Abba, um, it is no brainer for them. They used to use it every day life to address their, their father at home. It's a term of endearment. It's like saying, dear daddy or papa. And Jesus begins his heartfelt plea by addressing God, Abba, Father. There is this childlike intimacy to the Father. It's a way of saying to him, like any child that would call daddy, you know, father, daddy or papa. It's a way of saying to God, God, I totally place my trust in you. Now, how is it in such a horrible state? in such agony that he would be in a position to say, I place all my trust in you. So hard, isn't it, for us? How is it that Jesus conquered all impossibilities and would have all his trust in God? He tells us how. With tears streaming out of his eyes, as we read in Hebrew tells us, and drops of blood falling off his face, 
When he says, Abba, Father, it's like saying, Father, I acknowledge that you are my dear daddy. Dear daddy who loves me, who looks after me and protects me. You, you, God, you are my daddy who takes care of me. You're my papa. You know what is best for me. And not only that, he continues on and he says, all things are possible for you. Daddy, you can accomplish anything you want. All my sufferings are under your sovereign control. All things are possible for you, meaning, Daddy, even my worst enemies don't have power over me unless you, you, Papa, want him and grant him this power. And so I trust in you. He never only viewed God to be just a loving daddy who cannot control situations. All things are possible for you. And with earnest plea, he's being transparent then to his father as definitely part of submission, this total honesty with where he's at. He would say to the father, remove this cup from me. Again, this bitter cup of his suffering, full of sin of the world and the guilt that comes with it and the wrath of God that follows. And this infinitely pure son of God must drink all of what is in the cup. It's a human nature. Jesus was jolted. He felt the pressure building up. He pleaded with the Father to remove this agony. It's not to say that his will was contrary to the Father's will, as we're going to see soon in the next statement. But it is to say that he's in absolute holiness. When he's faced with a dreadful reality that he is about to bear the sins of the world. Uh, this is the response. But now we look at our Redeemer. Brothers, behold the author of your salvation. As he rises out of the dust of Gethsemane and he says to the Father, and pay attention to this, yet not what I will, but what you will. Wow. And so Jesus here threw himself entirely into the will of the Father. Of course he did. He placed his full confidence in the Father. What else would he do? And Jesus, even in the darkest hour of his life on earth, he surrendered all to the Father. What bravery. Jesus knew that it was just only an hour or so before Judas would come with the soldiers and, and, and the betrayal would take place, he could have walked away. It was so painful. He could have just flee. But what courage, what bravery, what boldness did Jesus have? 
Here is the fearless lion of Judah, even in the face of the worst unimaginable suffering. Brothers, he anchored his life and even his death to the will of the Father. We read this statement again. Not what I will, but what you will. God, dear Daddy, I love you too. And because I love you, I love what you love. I will endure patiently whatever you bring my way, dear Daddy. I wish for nothing else but your approval, Daddy. I'll choose pain if it pleases you, Father. Your priority is my priority. Your ambitions are my ambitions. Your glory is my passion. I live for you alone, Daddy. What kind of holy submission did Jesus show? Not my will, but your will. God, my life, my family, my friends, my passions, my possessions, my gifts, my talents, my skills. I wrap them all up as though there's a gift, a token of love, and I place them, Lord, at your feet. God, do in me and through me as you choose. Father, I trust you and all I want and what makes me glad, what consumes my mind is your will to be done in my life. Brothers, have you heard of a, such a Messiah as our Messiah? Is there a beautiful Lord as our Lord? Even in his human nature, he's so good. He became deeply grieved, brother, so that we would be deeply joyful in him. And he became exceedingly sorrowful so that we would be exceedingly glad in him. He is such a sympathetic savior. He's a suffering servant, submissive son, and all in all, glorious Lord. And for eternity to come, we who belong to him, we will behold thousands and tens of thousands of angels and myriads upon myriads of redeemed saints for eternity to come bowing down and worshipping this lamb. And we will see multitudes of godly men and women, even the greatest heroes of faith, as they line up one by one and take their greatest crowns and place them at, their, at his feet. And we will forever praise him. What a savior we have, brothers and sisters. And his greatness compels us to love him. 
Does it not? His character drives us to praise him. We desire to be like him. And we cast off our self-confidence because we want to be sympathetic as he is sympathetic. Amen. And we want to be like him, suffering servants as our master is a suffering servant. And how beautiful would it be as God begins to paint with his Holy Spirit in the fabric of our own hearts and lives, that submissive spirit that Jesus has. Let us enjoy this Savior, brothers and sisters. Open your hearts and minds out wide. Enjoy how compassionate he is, because that's the only way we could be compassionate to one another, right? You can't give what you don't have. And the only way that we would be able to exercise grace is that we have grace. And the only way that we have grace is when we ponder and reflect and meditate on our gracious Lord Jesus Christ and love him as, he, as who he is. And for those among us who are not saved, time is ticking. You're not going to live for long on this earth. A day will come where if you do not put your trust in Jesus, you will face your judgment. All the agonies that Jesus experienced will be applied upon your life and for eternity to come. This grief that Jesus experienced, but for a moment, you will experience it for eternity. Because you have to give an account to every thought and every deed and every evil desire that is contrary to God's will. But as you have beheld this wonderful Savior, Agassamini, with such a great heart, that loves to save sinners. He did all that in order to save sinners. He enjoys, he delights in saving sinners. And not only sinners, but the worst kind of sinners. Those that are most stubborn and those who have a heart that is as cold as ice. He loves to melt these kind of hearts. And what does he demand? Nothing. Nothing at all. Because he did it all. He alone single-handedly satisfied all that God demands of his people. I call upon you this morning. Whether you have not been saved, whether you, you know that you're an unbeliever and you're not saved, or whether you have claimed for a while to be born again, and in reality, you have not come to know Christ yet. I plead with you to look upon the cross of Jesus. Behold his blood that was shed. It is to save sinners. I plead with you to come to him 
bring all of your sins, all of your pride and selfishness and lustful desires, bring them all to his feet and say, Jesus, today, not today, even now, save me, Lord, save me. He would love to save you. He said, he who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So on behalf of my Savior, I beg of you to come to him and see the salvation of the Lord coming to visit you into your own heart and to abide in you for eternity to come. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we so undeserving sinners. The only thing that we are worthy of is eternal punishment in hell. And for 10,000 years to come, we'll be asking you, Lord God, why? Why me? Why us? And for thousands, we'll only hear one answer, because I love you. We thank you, Lord, for this love. We accept it. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, this suffering servant, this submissive son. And we pray that he would rule in our hearts and reign and his wonderful characters and attributes would shine out of our hearts through our lips and our actions, Lord. That he would be magnified, that we would decrease and that Jesus Christ would increase. In Jesus' name, amen.